telling where you'll end up. Can you make it through? To the night's end. It's always fun seeing fellow agents of evil at work. I hope my minions back in the caves are doing okay without me. Where are we now? Do you recognize this part of the house, friend? If that's not a sign, then I don't know what is. (laughs) Is that you, Malik? Is it time for my debutante ball? I'm ready, see? Pardon me, I thought you were the butler. I'm Anna Mortane. I'm the daughter of Alan Mortane, the head of this house. Our apologies, miss. We're just looking for a way home. Do you think I'm beautiful? Uh, friend, I think this one's a little loopy. What's with all the mirrors around the room? Well, do you? Um, yes, Miss Mortane. Very beautiful indeed. I think so too. That's why I asked Malik to bring all of the mirrors in the house to me. A reflection such as this must be watched at all times. And who better to watch it than me? That's an interesting perspective. It's not perspective if it's the truth. Brent, can you see the pedestal over there? It looks like a picture frame. Do you think you can get over to it? I'll try and keep her distracted. Looks like she's been in here for a hundred years. Can you please readjust these mirrors over here? They're not capturing my true essence. Of course, madam. I'm here to assist. No! No, you're doing it wrong! What is so difficult? Touch the frame now! Before she... Behind the glass. Written by Carolyn M. O'Brien. Narrated by Maggie. Sam spotted the newspaper peeking out from behind the metal cabinet as he squatted near the drain in the concrete floor in the basement. He read something that interested him and he crept closer, wanting to read more. He tugged at the paper and realized that something had been wrapped in it. He pulled it the rest of the way out and unwrapped a semicircle of thick glass. The sound of Lily's kitten heels clacking on the wooden steps caused Sam to stop in his tracks and look up at Lily as if he were a child that was caught in the act of doing something naughty. Lily froze too, but not because of Sam. The glass he was holding brought back unwanted memories. She descended the last three steps and sauntered toward him, reaching for the glass, and Sam passed it to her freely. I often wonder where the other half went, Lily said, and she divulged the story behind the glass. My brother always enjoyed making beautiful creations out of items that most people would throw away. He sold a few pieces of his artwork and even got requests. 
He spent many Saturdays and some Sundays at the junkyard, and he kept all his, she made air quotes with one hand, items of potential in the basement, leaving a small space unobstructed for a work area. So when he saw two large pieces of discarded tempered glass, he snatched them up before the custodians took it away. My 15th birthday was coming up and he made me a picture frame with the other half. She turned the glass over in her hands. He secured a thin sheet of metal to the back, creating a pocket large enough for a photograph and propped it on a small, sturdy easel that he had also crafted. When Glenn gave it to me, my photo was already in the frame, so it remained there for the first few days. I kept it next to my lamp on the nightstand in my bedroom. As I was placing the frame on the easel, I noticed what I assumed were Glenn's fingerprints smearing the glass, so I sprayed some cleaner on it and rubbed it with a paper towel. After several attempts at wiping away the stubborn smudges, I decided there were probably permanent stains. The glass was secondhand. Who really knew what substances it came in contact with? I examined the glass more closely and discovered five fuzzy numbers strewn across the surface. They were slight as a watermark on paper. Two, five, 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 zero. At first I wondered if it was a date, but then I deduced that the numbers would not make sense as a date. I thought zip code? After researching zip codes in the United States, I found 25550 was a zip code in the state of West Virginia. I reasoned that maybe it was where the glass was originally made. The next morning, though, before I got out of bed, I rolled onto my side and looked at the picture. The fuzzy zero on the glass that hovered above my head like a halo the day before appeared to have grown a tail and stuck out of my head like a single curl on a cartoon baby. She giggled as the scene replayed in her mind's eye. When I squinted, trying to focus on the glass rather than the picture, I realized that the zero had become a nine. Upon closer inspection, I saw the number was now two Nine. The next morning, it was 25548, and at that point, I knew it was a countdown. I removed the photo of myself. I figured that the numbers would be easier to see on the solid silver pocket, but instead, the numbers seemed to have vanished. That's when I decided to perform an experiment by putting a picture of my parents behind the glass. They had died in a car accident several months earlier. I kept a picture of them in the nightstand, so I took it out of the drawer and put it in the frame. A big fat zero took shape like the formation of a wispy cloud. It didn't take a scientist to realize that the numbers were the number of the days the subject in the photo had left to live. I was bursting to tell Glenn. He wasn't exactly open to the idea of an enchanted frame. <laughs> I had to prove to him I wasn't pulling his leg. Lily chuckled. I handed him the frame with a photograph of our parents still in it. While he held it, I pointed out the zero around their clasped hands. I told him that the zero indicated that they had no more days left to live, and he polished it on his shirt as if he were attempting to erase the evidence. I admit that I was losing my patience, and I tore the glass from his grip, 
ripping the photo from the pocket. I said in a smart-ass tone, If you want to get rid of the number, simply remove the picture. Then I took Glenn's college graduation picture off the mantle and removed it from its ordinary frame. I slipped it into the pocket of the magic frame and tilted the glass this way and that way while Glenn stared at me with a smirk. Finally, the number came into view. I read them aloud, 20805. That's how many days you have left. Unfortunately, that wasn't the end of my persuasive speech. But eventually, he was convinced and we decided it was best not to further dabble with the bizarre phenomenon at that time. The frame sat empty on its easel in a closet. Then one day, Glenn's wife Eve bought him one of those gadgets that print photos right from your cell phone. He snapped a picture of Eve and put it in the frame. Eve still didn't know about the frame's capabilities. And when Glenn saw the number three appear in a haze on the glass, he thrust it onto the hardwood floor and pieces scattered like a spilled sack of raw diamonds. I believe he did his best to hide his concern, but when that third day arrived, he offered to stay home with Eve. I had left for school, so my brother told me what happened next. He said he was in the bedroom talking to his mother-in-law on the phone that morning while Eve was preparing the tub for them in the connecting bathroom. Both Glenn and I knew that Eve often lay under the faucet, staring up at the beads of water as they rolled along the edge of the spout, growing as they united, threatening to fall at any second. Lily closed her eyes and swallowed. When she opened them, she breathed out heavily and continued. Maybe she was feeling so relaxed that she started to fall asleep, startling herself. Whatever the reason, she must have sat up quickly and banged her forehead on the solid, perturbing pipe hard. She blacked out before she plunged back under the warm bathwater. Lily paused and laid the glass on top of the cabinet. She sauntered over to the window, straining her neck to peer out at the pear tree she and her brother had planted in Eve's remembrance. Sam moved the stool under the staircase. Glenn said he was alerted when he heard the splash, so he tossed the phone onto the bed and rushed through the doorway into the bathroom. He bent on one knee and slipped his hand under Eve's neck, lifting her lulling head out of the water. A red L dented in the skin on her forehead. He lifted her from the tub and carried her unconscious body to the bed. After covering her nakedness with an afghan, he picked up the mobile phone. His mother-in-law was still on the line, so when he heard Eve begin to gag, he touched the speaker before dropping the phone and turning Eve onto her side. She <laughs> coughed and spit out water, complaining about a headache. Sam said, Sounds like your sister-in-law escaped death. Just a sidestep. And Lily sighed and took a few more breaths. Later that day, Glenn and Eve made some pickled eggs, and Eve lit some scented candles. My brother wanted to make his lasagna for supper, so he planned to go shopping for the ingredients. Eve stretched on the chaise lounge with a bag of ice on her head, and Glenn left for the market after playfully reminding Eve not to fall asleep with the candles lit. As I trekked from the bus stop and neared the house, I could see the smoke billowing from the window. 
I picked up the pace and burst through the front door. Smoke filled the place and a fiery smell burned my nose. I saw Eve passed out on the chaise and immediately sprinted toward her, shouting her name and coughing at the same time. I hesitated when I saw the ugly purple L on her head, but only for a second. I tried to wake her by shaking her, and when Eve didn't stir, I tugged her arm, only succeeding in causing her to fall forward and fold in half. The smoke wafted out the front door, and a neighbor called the fire trucks. The bread was charred and the cause of the smoky ruckus. We also found out that the glass was correct when it told us that Eve had three days to live. She died from a concussion. When your number's up, your number's up. Sam asked, so do you think your brother is planning on making another frame? Lily paused. He moved all his treasures from down here to a storage unit. I don't think he even remembers that glass is here. Where did he find the pieces? I believe the glass was originally one large piece. Someone had purchased a table from a yard sale across the street. It slid off the top as they were loading it onto their pickup. Six years ago, Sam asked. Yes, the owner passed away. I bought that wicker end table, Sam said. He recalled the previous owner of the house across the street. All the kids said he had been scalped because a thin, pale, pink line arched his head where his hairline would have been when he was younger. It curved around his temples and disappeared behind his ears, like piping on a birthday cake. When anyone saw him, they would say, There goes Stitch! Or if they hadn't seen him, they'd ask, Where's Stitch today? They all seemed unsure about his intentions. No one really knew what to think about his profound concern for missing individuals, particularly the missing children. He heard about the time Stitch approached Sophia Snell's parents as they posted flyers of their missing daughter on a mailbox down the street from his house. He was clutching a flyer of the girl in his fist, waving it at the couple, trying to make them understand the urgency of finding her ASAP. But he only succeeded in frightening them and incriminating himself. They went to the police and Stitch was accused of having something to do with the teen's disappearance. Three days later, Stitch was seen tearing down Sophia's flyers from several poles around town. Then some kids discovered her body while they were hiking in the mountains. She died from exposure to the elements, and Stitch was absolved from any connections to her death, at least by the authorities. It all made sense now. Stitch must have known how long Sophia had left to live. So is that be witch glass technically mine? Sam wondered as he cynically caressed his chin. <laughs> but that's another story. You've been listening to the Night's End Podcast, which is a production of Dissonance Media. Behind the Glass was written by Carolyn M. O'Brien, who is also the author of Lifetime Commitment from Season 1 and our Patreon-exclusive episode, Discernible Character. This episode was narrated by Maggie from the Ladies' Fright Podcast. 
where Maggie, Jackie, and Lauren, who are three friends who talk about all things scary. Then, through personal anecdotes, history, sociology, and psychology, try to understand why it is so spooky. Just search Ladies Fright wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram by searching Ladies Fright, and on Twitter by searching Ladies Fright Pod. Jimmy Horrors was performed by James Barnett. Anna Mortain was performed by Rebecca Strazina, who is the host of her show, The West London Witch. You can find it for free wherever you listen to podcasts. It is a show about people's interactions with the supernatural. This episode was edited and produced by James Barnett. All links are in the show notes. And as always, stay horrific, everyone.